We have been on a bit of a mini-series at the moment, and it is, uh, we've been talking about this idea of who we are. And uh, this will be complete next week as we come to a church members meeting. And before we get ready for Christmas, the kids right now are practicing for December 8, which is our kids' takeover service. And uh, those are always amazing times, and, and uh, it's just really cool to see that coming together now. Once a year, we revisit our values as a church. Um, I, I've been on Facebook a lot this week, and there's a lot of uh, church pastors uh, talking about vision casting. And, and I, I kind of know what they mean, and I know, and, and I kind of like thinking in a visionary way, but I've also learned after coming up for 11, 12 years of being a Baptist pastor now, that casting vision can be a little bit of a jarring idea in the life of a Baptist church, but value casting works a whole lot better. Uh, speaking about who we are, rather than some guy from the top down going, this is what we're going to do, charge, works better in a family of believers like the Baptist Church is. You know, we have this congregational uh, uh, gathering that determines where we're going. So when a guy like me gets to actually speak about our direction as a church, it's more about merging and understanding who you are and who we are together, more so than actually trying to throw new, next, latest and greatest things into the midst for, for, um, you know, for everything to get done. So we're doing a bit of value casting at the moment. We've looked at two values so far. The first one is simply that we are, are a disciple-making congregation and we are deliberate about doing that. Okay, we are in the business, if, if, for want of a better word, of making disciples. That's what the Great Commission is all about. And, uh, but you need to jump online to catch up on that now. Second one we looked at last week is that we are committed to intentional mission. And we saw that being missional is to some degree everyone's job. Uh, we know that there is a gift set given to the church, the ministry gift of the evangelist. I look forward this week to actually hearing from Alan Hirsch in a conference who will actually be speaking about the different, uh, the ascension gifts in the, in the life of the church. I'm looking forward to that. But at the most basic level, being missional simply, being, simply involves being an agent and a carrier of hope. And this hope is demonstrated to the point that others can see it. And this hope is articulated in that when you are asked why you have it, you can actually speak the reason for it. Hopefully that's Christ. I suggested a number of ways we can express this value of being missional. Uh, we can do that in our own individual expression. We can also do that as groups and together in different ways. And you'll need to jump online to hear those suggestions also today. The third one I want to briefly look at today is simply this. At Mangambia Baptist Church, nobody walks alone. Every teaching series that we have done over the last couple of years has led us to the place where community and fellowship is inevitable. The book of Acts showed this. The book of 1 Corinthians showed this. Leviticus showed this. Hebrews showed this. Our recent series under construction showed this. 
Peter's discipleship blueprint points us eventually to brotherly affection. Scripturally, fellowship is expressed in unity first and foremost. It is further expressed in things like mutual submission to each other. We're going to start looking at that theme uh, in the course of next year. It's expressed in our overall regard for each other. It's expressed in our commitment to meeting together. And it's, and it's brought to this sacred space, not just community, but fellowship that we have with each other. I can't find an example of Christian living in the New Testament that doesn't involve, include the value of community. It doesn't exist without community and fellowship around it. Doing things solo and calling ourselves singular, the church, without being part of one, which is often a, a, an expression in the West, is outside the New Testament presentation of a healthy Christian life. So as a congregation, we hold a value that is built around this idea of community and fellowship. No one walks alone. I've got a couple of basic Bible verses again, because I don't want to be overcomplicated with this. So it doesn't need to be a complex journey here. It just needs some simple reminders. And I have tapped into this verses here already. But 1 John 1.3 tells us that there is an arrangement of fellowship that exists within the Godhead. A partnership, a dance, as Graham Buxton puts it, that takes place between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they partake in this mysterious thing called the Trinity. Genesis tells us this was active even in creation. Let us make man in our image. John then tells us that we, through Christ, get invited and swept into this arrangement also. To embrace fellowship is to embrace a key part of us that is made in the image of God. And it's actually something in the sacred that the cross accomplishes. It brings us back into fellowship with God, with the Father. Paul also understands this. He writes to the Corinthians. That's a church that loved their individualism a little bit too much. And he says this, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship in the ancient Greek means to share or participate in common. Its extension is the ancient Greek word for generosity. I said this only a number of weeks ago. Fellowship is a generous, common partnership with the Trinity first through Christ, with each other through the power of the Spirit, resulting in a powerful and specific unity that brings us together and brings us together in the pursuit of a common, exceptional cause, which is the agenda of the kingdom of God. Now, I would suggest that community begins here at the seeker chair. 
The very nature of having an open chair where someone can take a spot and actually engage with you. If you have a secret chair in your life, if you have a space where you can invite people to come and sit, to come and see, to come and engage with the hope you have, then you have extended hospitality to that person and you are inviting people into community first and foremost. A lot of churches today have this idea of belonging and then believing. And this is where it comes from. When they come into the seeker chair, they can sit in this space and go, okay, I feel like I belong at this table. I feel like I belong in this conversation. I feel like I belong in this space. Now tell me more about how to believe. Community, for me, then creates a doorway to fellowship. Fellowship as the scriptures present it, for me, as I'm looking, as I'm studying our journey and this understanding that has been established already, fellowship, God who is in fellowship, Jesus who is in fellowship with the Father, calls us into fellowship with him. Therefore, that's a second chair thing. We come from community into fellowship. We come into this place where we begin to identify with each other. That's what the baptism is all about. When we identify with Christ, this is the chair. We enter, enter this more sacred space called fellowship. I see this sort of journey as I consider the end of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. The crowd asks how to respond to Peter. Brothers, what should we do? And this is how he responds. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three major things, all second chair things. Repent usually gets translated as to change one's mind or purpose, and we've all heard that. It's the process of getting out of a seeker chair and taking our place in the convert one. It's the spot, okay, now I know I belong. Now, you know what? After belonging for a bit and after interacting with you, after enjoying the hospitality you've extended to me, after seeing your hope, I now believe. In context... When Peter is preaching to these people in Jerusalem, it meant to completely switch allegiances, and that meant so much in a Roman-governed province. It was saying that my agenda means nothing. My empires mean nothing. The world and its empires and its ways mean nothing. The kingdom of God is now what I seek first. Jesus is now my sovereign. My crowns, my purposes, my agendas are laid at his feet. That's what repent means. In our baptisms earlier, we asked a liturgical question that reflects this type of repentance. We ask a question, do you turn your back on the world, the flesh, and the devil and choose to follow Jesus all the days of your life? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the, the, the mindsets, the, the way, the value system that is out, out there in the world that is contrary to God. The flesh is how we feel about that and what we want. And the devil, well, that's the spiritual influence that wants to lead us astray and pull us away from the things of God. And we turn our back on all three of those things. And we say, you know what? We serve Jesus now. Those three things go out the window. They are 
subject to Jesus. This is a statement of repentance that declares loyalty to Jesus alone despite the claims others may try to make of us and including ourselves in that. And then with this statement underpinning things, be baptized. This moves us mysteriously from community to fellowship. Some may have been confirmed in another tradition or another denomination. This is how those denominations have tried to grapple with this idea of not just being a person around us, but being a person of us or being part of us, being a people, being a fellowship. When Peter called for this, he was calling seekers to convert, to nail their colors to the mast by joining meaningfully with others to publicly identify with Christ as king and also identify with his kingdom messianic community through the rite of baptism in line with the words of Christ in the Great Commission. And once baptism happens, fellowship happens, discipleship is, is the result, is, is, is what we start entering into through those means. With all this in mind, three key elements of Christian life and worship come together in one inseparable entity. We've got like three strands of one chord now. We have discipleship, we have witness, and we have fellowship. All intertwined with this word called worship. And the Christian faith becomes this multifaceted, multi-corded thing that forms this one rope called worship. Discipleship, witness, fellowship, and I'll suggest a fourth next week. I'm going to take us into another mid-message reflection time just now. I want to explore the concept of fellowship and how we function in it. To do this, we're going to reflect on Acts chapter 2. And I'm just going to read this out, and then I'm going to lead you through a bit of reflection on this. So let's just read this out together. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled in with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We've heard that passage many times in the last four years because I've used it a lot in four years. Let's consider some elements of healthy fellowship together from this. First, we have a commitment to meeting for teaching, for prayer, for communion. A commitment to meeting each other. Hebrew says, don't stop that. And they have a temple and homes culture going on. There was corporate and there was more intimate going on. 
There was some doctrinal unity going on. There was respectful engagement with differences. They were under the apostles' teaching. They were not fighting that. They knew the spirit was behind it. It was undeniable, and they're just going, "All right, let's just let's just let's learn these things that we need to know now." Let's learn about Christ. Yeah, we've got the Old Testament law. Now let's work out how Christ is, is the culmination of that, the, 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 uh, the fulfillment of that. There's a oneness of mind. It says it, that means a singleness of cause. I was at the OTR service station getting fuel yesterday. And with the OTR petrol app, I can go ahead and pick my cause, apparently. All these different charities and things that you can actually support through the OTR app. This word cause is making the rounds of it in church life and in community life. The church has a oneness. It's a, they were in one mind. In other words, they had one single drive, one cause, one collective thing, and it was bigger than emotional or intellectual affinity. They were all in this together, and they knew where they were going, basically. There was extravagant generosity. To the collective cause that the church is in the business of accomplishing, towards each other, and towards those not in community yet, also. Linguistically, fellowship and generosity are two sides of the same coin. There was open and transparent homes. Transparency is one of the most elusive elements of the discipleship journey. To the point where we can actually get, where it says, you know, to confess our faults one to another. It's elusive and deeply sacred. Open homes in our closed moats and drawbridges and times in life are also getting a bit elusive too nowadays. There's excellent hospitality and habitual hospitality. And the community around them knows us for these traits. And they're attracted to faith as a result. Let me give you 60 seconds to ponder those. See if the Spirit wants to say something in amongst all that. A culture of fellowship. Let me offer a few things that a church can promote and facilitate when it comes to fellowship. Particularly for us at the moment. We need to understand that due to our size, we can't know everyone. But we can know some people quite well. And this is what we're all actually expected and even created to be able to do. All the experts say that we cannot know more than about 30 people with any sense of depth. 
To have a friendship base larger than this means you'll be a mile wide in relationships, but only an inch deep. I have 700-odd-plus Facebook friends, but I have about three intimate close friends. We're setting an impossible task if we demanded that everyone knows everyone in our congregation. We are a worshipping community of 300 plus people. If everybody showed up on a Sunday morning, we would actually have massive logistical issues. We're working on that at the moment. But instead, for quite some time now, we've been trying to promote this idea that everyone is known by someone. Someone not just knows your name, but knows your story. Knows where you've come from. Knows who you are. Knows some of the struggles in your life. Knows your victories. Knows your, your testimony. Knows your faith journey. And knows enough to pray for you. Knows your phone number. Knows able to actually can, can get in contact with you and be on the end of a speed dial should you need them. We can all do that for somebody else. Everyone is known by name and story by someone. Because together we're community. We can give ourselves a bit of a nod in the, in the foyer. We can see ourselves down Commercial Street and go, I think I know you're in, you're in our church. Hey, how you doing, you? I kind of know, I can look at you all and sprout your names off. But the depth of relationship is usually reserved to a few. And that's okay. That's purely okay. Something I want to promote here also. If you're checking us out, our table is always going to be open to you. Our culture here is that you will want to be known that you choose not to stand alone also. This idea of nobody stands alone, we can do all our, be- all our work to look out for you, but it's our heart that in this community, you go, I don't want to stand alone either. I want to be part of this. My heart breaks when we have church, um, those church settings where we walk in at the last possible minute and we'll leave before the last chord is played. Having said that, I'm also incredibly sympathetic to that because I'm an, I am a really deep introvert. And I actually, you know, I, I, I go to, I, I've visited churches all around the country. I've spoken at some, I've been on holidays and poked in at some and, and, and the meet and greet things happen and I'm kind of like, you know, I get a bit cringy at that. I, I, I'm never comfortable in those spots. I'm an introvert. I kind of sympathize with it. But I've also learned the value of stopping, introducing myself and interacting with the people I meet. And nearly always I get enriched by that process. In this church, we're a people who actually connect well. Let me encourage you to stick around a little bit longer. Open up a little bit. Learn some names. Learn some people. Get to know us a bit. 
Okay, I encourage those not in a house church to consider getting plugged into one in 2020. Accountable, open homes, close proximity to each other, confessing our faults to one another, praying for each other, experiencing that effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person in those intimate settings, meeting together in homes, not just the temple courts. These are things that really matter and endorsed heavily in Scripture. They're for our well-being. And we have a very good structure with these things and we're working like mad to create new groups at the moment. Being in accountable fellowship is healthy. Can I encourage you, if you're not in something yet like this, jump in, plug in, get into community a bit tighter, get into fellowship nice and tightly. And make use of the other things that are coming on. We've got lots of connection points happening through the year. Have been for years now. Men's ministries, women's events, youth, young adults. We'll be working on some family gathering stuff as well. There's, there's, there's connection points throughout the year that we create. These are really amazing things going on in our church life. Every person who comes to them goes, gee, they're really cool. Every person who comes to these things goes, gee, I wish other people would be part of this because they would experience something cool too. Maybe this is a year of connecting a little bit more deeply, a little bit more frequently, a little bit more meaningfully in the areas we have, which are actual smaller cross-sections of who we are. I'm also really excited about the international makeup of our congregation right now. The Bible slides lately have been done in such a way that these people don't stand alone in our midst. If you haven't met any of these people yet, can I ask you to take that step? The things about life and faith that some in our community can teach us right now is huge. I had the privilege of having breakfast with one gentleman just a couple of weeks ago hearing his story, and I am absolutely in awe of that. That's an amazing testimony. You can't help but be jumping for joy at the stories that God has done with these people. And their grasp on the concept of fellowship, particularly hospitality, is something that us Western guys can really learn from. It's amazing what they do. I'm going to put that reflection page back up again. When it comes to fellowship, is anything there going, you know what, I, 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 there's another muscle group I can build there. Gee, my home hasn't been open in a while. There's... The doctrinal unity idea, this is actually not creating clones of each other. There's a, an old phrase that talks about being solid at the core. In other words, the, the, the orthodox things, the things that deeply matter, the things that every Christian should believe in order to call themselves one. That we remain solid at the core, our Christology, our soteriology, things like that. They're, 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 they're things that we hold dear and, and they're non-negotiable. And then they talk about being frayed at the edges. There's things on the periphery of Christian doctrine. 
that sometimes get needlessly fought over when they don't need to be. Baptist churches actually have this environment where we call about, talk about freedom of conscience and freedom of, 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 of uh, being able to make your own mind up in those matters and, and uh, respectful, uh, encouraging engagement with different subject matter is actually what we're called to do there. We're actually doing pretty good at that if you're trying to work out what that means though. 2020 is going to be a year where I believe generosity will be developed in all of us. And I actually, I have to say, and this will be hopefully one of the few times I even need to say this, it's the first time in four years I ever have. The church is kind of counting on it a little bit. The explosive growth of the church right now is actually calling us to take some key faith steps in 2020. We usually leave those discussions for the members' meetings, but that's a smaller section of our church. The whole family can take ownership of this together, I believe. These big faith steps will affect the church at both a time level as well as a budget one. Our weekly offerings actually will need to be at about five to $600 a week higher than they currently are. That's actually only a few dollars a household. Or maybe a few people who haven't been giving just to go, you know what, I need to establish a pattern now. We've set an ambitious budget because we believe the church is equal to that task. And a new season means a new time of that. Can I really encourage you to consider that particular commitment? If you know me, you'll know that I really don't like talking about money like that. So hopefully I don't have to do that too much. Besides that, what about the other stuff? If you ask me, I'd say we're doing quite well. There are churches that actually make the claim, oh, honestly, I wish I had a dollar for every time a church has said, we're the friendliest church in town. Seriously. Some of those claims are writing checks they actually can't cash. It was a claim that was kind of made to me when I was being interviewed for this church. But can I tell you now, this is an incredibly friendly church. This is actually a church that majors in connection, in first impressions, in knowing people and getting, getting people involved and connecting up and loving other people to meeting strangers. This is a church that does okay at it. There are other great, vibrant churches in this town also. And I believe the common thread in all of those churches that are doing well is the value that we place on this idea of community and fellowship. Belonging. So that eventually they come to a point of believing and then moving on to discipling after that. But we always need to work on stuff. That's why the list is up there. Arrival is reserved for the kingdom, not before. Are our homes open as much as they could be? Are we as committed to meeting and learning as we need to be? Is the right type of oneness of mind in place? Are we active in hospitality? Leaders, the scriptural standard for leaders is to be given to hospitality in that we're in the habit of doing this. 
Does any of that need work? Is there anything, one or two things that we go, you know what, that could probably change in my life in 2020? I'll allow the Spirit to deal with you on that and to actually speak to you. Our last value, is, our third value is simply that nobody stands alone. And this is because as a congregation, we seek to excel in the arena of fellowship. Let's let the Spirit speak to us. Let's pray. I'll hand over to the worship team as we wind up today.